Welcome to another episode of What Matters Now, in which I, Amanda Borchel Dan, speak with our Times of Israel senior analyst, Chaviv Retegur. Today, instead of joining me in my home, we're both sitting inside our Jerusalem offices. Hello, Chaviv. Hi, Amanda. We have a difficult conversation in front of us, and there are parts of it that we're even unsure if we should be having. And so we're just going to dive in, and overarchingly, we're going to talk about the the death in Gaza and how Israel could and perhaps should respond to it. So I'm just going to start with a few figures. At least 10,600 children have been killed in Israeli attacks in Gaza since October 7th, according to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health on Tuesday. The Palestinian death toll from the ongoing Israeli aggression, they say, has exceeded 24,285, of which 75% are children, women, and elderly people, again, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. So I, as a person, as a mother, as anyone with a heart does as well, I see this death and I mourn the potential life that that was extinguished alongside it. But at the same time, as an Israeli, as a mother of Israeli children, as the mother of a soldier, I think to myself, we are fighting for our home right now. And of course, a lot of this death could have been prevented by the rulers of Gaza themselves. Khaviv, this is a very difficult topic. What what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think you laid that out very powerfully. I think that it's a little bit of a scary conversation to have as an Israeli. First of all, because there's an audience. <laughs> and I mean, that's simply the case. I mean, I have seen the images coming out of Gaza. They are horrifying. I understand with deep sympathy people who get those images come across their cell phones out in the world, the cell phones where they communicate with the world, right? These little objects have become our our open window to everything. That's how we talk to our families. That's how we get our news. And these images have been coming across everybody's, including Israelis' phones for the past uh, hundred and something days. And it's absolutely horrifying. At the beginning, on October 7th, I'm just going to uh, admit something uh, just psychological, emotional here that is a little scary to say. I watched Hamas videos, and some of the videos, I, 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 there's a great many I did not watch and refused to watch. I don't have the right to participate in the dehumanization of a lot of Hamas's victims. But the ones that I saw before making that decision included, the ones that stuck with me weren't the bloody ones. The ones that stuck with me were those of families on the ground, from Hamas's own GoPros, families sitting on the floor of their own homes, perfectly ordinary families in perfectly ordinary homes, while Hamas gunmen decide who to shoot and kill. And I could not help but see my family sitting on that floor. And for me, at the very, very beginning, I would say for the first week, and even though, you know, we have podcasts from that first week, we have articles from that first week, I myself wrote, and many people at the Times of Israel said and wrote, we know what's coming in Gaza, we know it's going to be horrifying, we are troubled by it, we are frightened of it, we're frightened of what Gazans are going to suffer. We Israelis blame Hamas, but nevertheless, we know what they're going to suffer. But just at a level of emotion, it was hard to feel empathy. It dried up the empathy for a while, and it's back. And it's back very quickly. Uh, By week two, I remember 
really truly starting to worry for Gaza, feeling some connection. Um, it's you know I had family in the war, but but there was this moment where and 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 it was what Hamas was shooting for. It was the goal, and it and it worked. October seven, from Hamas's perspective, so far, unless the Israeli war effort achieves its fundamental aim, Hamas's goal will was is as of now a success. Um, it, it dried that up. And so we're walking into, in this conversation, we said this on the on the phone calls that we've had about this uncharted territory, where we're going to try and think through what Israelis feel about Gazan civilian deaths, how much they feel it, what, how they, what lens they see it through, obviously through Hamas putting civilians in harm's way as a, at a strategic scale. But nevertheless, here we are, Israelis, with family in the war, what do we think about Palestinian civilian deaths? It's it's not just scary because there's an audience watching. I, I'm not, you know I I don't know that I. What if Israelis think less sympathetic things than I hope they think or wish they think? What do I do with that? So we're we're diving in and. Uh, well, one thing that we both found ahead of this conversation that we've been discussing having for actually several weeks now is that there is no polling that we found, and I asked a lot of universities, a lot of think tanks, a lot of our colleagues, have you come across any kind of data showing us what, how and what Israelis are thinking about the death rate in Gaza right now? And the only thing we found, really, both of us, is something that comes kind of close to the question, but isn't exactly the question. And that was a poll from uh, the Israel Democracy Institute in December. And their question there was, to what extent should Israel take into consideration the suffering of the civilian population in Gaza when planning the continuation of the fighting there? And so it breaks it down between Jews and Arabs. But just first, the question itself is really interesting because it takes for granted that there will be suffering, which obviously in war there is suffering. And historically, there is a lot of suffering in war, obviously. And the continuation of the fighting there, meaning Israel will continue to fight there. Now, I think you have it in front of your eyes as well. So, how did the Jews feel versus the Arabs? Right, it's really astonishing. Um, the the difference. It's it's what you would expect, but it is it is absolute. And again, exactly what you just said. It's really important that listeners understand. This is not the question. Do you care about civilian suffering? This is the question. Should the potential civilian suffering of the Israeli war effort be foundation be, be uh, critical to planning the fighting? In other words, the way I understand the question is an Israeli, and the way I think most listeners will have understood the question is: If it costs too many civilian lives, should Hamas survive? Should civilian deaths, which are Hamas's strategy, make Hamas immune? And Jews and Arabs are opposite on this. Among the Jews. Uh, to a uh, large extent, or a fairly large extent, is 19% put together. And should the suffering of civilian population in Gaza um, be taken into consideration in terms of planning the actual war, um, or to what extent it should be, to a very small extent or to a fairly small extent, is 81%. So the Jews are 81 to 19 uh, 
about 40% to a very small extent, 41%, fairly small extent. It should be in the calculations, but low down on the totem pole after the destruction of Hamas. That is 81% total want the Hamas destroyed as the top priority and Gazan civilian suffering somewhere beneath that. Among Arabs, it is exactly reversed, where the Jews are 81 against letting Hamas survive, you know, at the no matter the cost to civilians. Um, among the Arab community, it's 83 the other way. Um, 83 is, it should be very large extent or fairly large extent. Very large extent is 60 points. Fairly large extent, 23 points. Um, should Gazan civilian suffering should be taken into consideration. I hope I laid that out clearly. It's 81% of the Jews say first Hamas, then civilians. And 83% of the Arabs of Israel say first civilians, then you take out Hamas. And I'll just remind our listeners that that was done in December, meaning this is already very far into the campaign in Gaza, the ground offensive in Gaza, in which people are definitely aware of what's going on there in terms of the the displacement of the population. We all know here in Israel that there is 1.5 million, even perhaps more, that are displaced from their homes and living in these tent cities. Everyone is aware of this. But I think what Israelis are also very deeply aware of is something that you touched on earlier about how Hamas is cynically and strategically using the population to create these images to create this kind of uh, public opinion against Israel. I just want to quote from uh, a piece that Mark Champion from Bloomberg uh, wrote in November. And he said, this isn't rocket science. Dead Palestinian civilians are an essential part of Hamas's plan, whose goal was to draw Israel deep into Gaza, create a bloodbath, and expand the war by enraging and drawing in new players such as Hezbollah in Lebanon, Iran, and Israel's Arab neighbors. But he goes on to say that most Arab governments understand fully that Hamas is an equivalent to Islamic State that offers nothing to Palestinians beyond poverty and death. And this, I think, is actually the point that when I look at my Twitter feed or what people I know are posting on other social media, this, I think, is the point that people just don't understand, that Hamas is using the civilians in Gaza as pawns, that they are setting up Israel to create the optics that are so difficult to bear during this war. I would go farther than even um, Bloomberg, and and everything you said is absolutely right, but it's the extent of the depravity of Hamas's strategy for Gazans, never mind us, the worst atrocity that Hamas committed on October 7th, because it committed two. The, the By far the worst one was what it did to Gaza. Until October 7th, we Israelis, the policy planning elites, were convinced that Hamas was deterred, that Hamas was contained. And then Hamas planned October 7th. It didn't just plan. It has controlled Gaza for 17 years. About 12 of those years, it has been building a massive tunnel network. It has bent Gaza's economy to that network. It has been building that network instead of anything else. It has done nothing else in Gaza except construct the entirety of Gaza into a battlefield for a future war that it was planning and a war in which for us to destroy Hamas 
we would have to cut through the civilian population. That's what those tunnels are. It's fundamental. It's who Hamas is. It's the only strategy. It's the old guerrilla strategy of attacking a standing army and then hiding behind civilians, but at a strategic scale with an entire economy and piece of territory bent to that end. And all of that's well and good. That's just a standoff right up until October 7th, because after creating Gaza to be a place where we have to cut through the civilian population to kill them. And therefore, we thought we had deterred them because we have this massive firepower. But they built Gaza to deter us, right? Our massive firepower would mean that we would cause terrible, terrible harm if we go after them. And we could not imagine something that they could do to us, some threat they could pose to us that would make us do that. And then they did October 7th. And so October 7th is an atrocity committed against us. And then it is a order of magnitude larger atrocity, order of magnitude, at least mathematically in terms of death toll, that they committed against Gaza's civilian population because we were not able then to not go after them and to uproot them. And that's going to be a war. Um, there's a lot of debate now over whether we can, right? The last, latest rocket volleys are from northern Gaza areas, which Israel controls above the ground as part of Hamas showing that, in fact, we don't yet control. And that's fine. That's part of the war. We understood that from day one. Gallant said, really, I think in week two, there's going to be the ground offensive. But after the ground offensive, there's going to be the tunnel war or the counterinsurgency, which is going to last months and months and months. Sometimes they talk about six to nine months. Sometimes they talk about a year and more. So it, that's expected. Of course, that's what Hamas is doing now. But what that means is that for Israelis, it is obvious. By the way, for Israeli Arabs, they do want to prioritize Palestinian civilian suffering over the goal of destroying Hamas. But Palestinian Arabs we speak to, Israeli Arabs we speak to, and even Palestinian Arabs in the West Bank uh, who support Hamas, support October 7th by huge numbers, something like 80%. They all understand that Hamas built Gaza this way. They do understand it. And if they support it, they talk about the altar of, you know, their sacrifice on the altar of whatever, of, 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 of liberation, of, of, of Islam, of whatever it is. The point is to most Israelis, certainly Jews, Hamas it killed those Palestinians and not just killed those Palestinians, made it impossible for them not to die by making themselves an intolerable threat while building those tunnels as a strategic effort. So Israelis do blame utterly, profoundly the other side. But what we, but like you said at the beginning, we can't find data on, okay, but what about just sympathy? What do Israelis feel. And people feel complicated things. People can feel, it's horrifying. I'm terrified. I don't let, I don't let my kids, I, I took my kids off Telegram or, or, you know, or Instagram or whatever. Not, I know a lot of people who have limited their kids' phone access for the first time because they don't want them to see those videos and they don't want them to see the videos coming out of Gaza because they're horrific. So there is this knowledge, there is an awareness, um, but nobody's polling it. Isn't it interesting that nobody's polling it? I think part of the issue here is that we are all in a way part of the people's army okay the idf is the people's army you served in the idf my son is now in the idf my husband was in the idf my brother-in-law everyone is part of this people's army and the support for the people's army is at the highest 
a pinnacle of importance to all media, I would say almost all media, maybe not the farthest left reaches of the media. And so a lot of these scenes that we've been describing are not part of the nightly news, the everyday nightly news in the United States or in the diaspora elsewhere. You're seeing all these scenes in front of your eyes, but here in Israel, Every time a soldier dies, it causes a ripple effect of mourning because we are so connected. I can't tell you how many people I know personally who have fallen, and I'm just this immigrant who came to this country alone. Because we are also connected, we need to keep the focus on the support for the People's Army for the ultimate goal that pretty much everyone in Israel, including the Israeli Arabs, want to see realized, which is the toppling of Hamas. And so, in a way, I think there is some kind of, shall we call it, collusion to keep our blinders on. Do you agree with that? It's a hard question, because it's unquestionably true that, look, Al Jazeera, which is owned by Qatar, which is an ideological ally and supporter and funder and patron of Hamas, Al Jazeera has at its core an ideological commitment to Hamas um, winning, frankly. And they do nothing but um, imagery out of Gaza. They're pumping it all day and all night, and all of their thinkers and all of their uh, people are talking about nothing else. The Israeli media, the Hebrew language Israeli media, um, it's not that they don't, because they do. It is there. But it is there in order of magnitude less than CNN, and Al Jazeera is in order of magnitude more than CNN <laughs> in terms of focus. I think that's basically how I think of it, and I think you're right. None of that really helps. Be- you know, it, it, it's not that we're not. Again, it's not that that keeps it out of our consciousness because the Israeli uh, mainstream television news um, is to a tremendous extent, uh, seen by Israelis, not so much on TV, but on the internet and on cell phones and in clips. And so in that world that we all live in now, which is increasingly in the cell phone screen, nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden, no matter what the editors of Channel 12's nightly news try to say or do or decide. And so, no, I, I do think Israelis see all of it. The mainstream Hebrew language news is much has much, much, much less of it than what the world is looking at, and certainly than what Arab, the Arab world is looking at. And, and each of these, I think, is an order of magnitude difference, and so it's a huge gap. But they know. They know in great detail. And, and so that's the question. We also, what we Israelis know that I think the world doesn't know, no matter how much even Al Jazeera should know this, but obviously don't report it for ideological reasons, is the extent to which the IDF is in endangering soldiers not to expand the civilian death toll. In the south, in Khan Yunis, the war is fundamentally different from Gaza City in the north because of the outcry to some significant extent, because of those scenes as well, because of fear. Not that... I think there's a real absolute moral question here. I ha- A friend of mine, um, uh, who we have kids in the same school, um, is a, um, a military lawyer in the Gaza division who helps sign off, who makes some of the legal decisions about signing off on airstrikes. He's really worried about his own morality, and he and he sees that as a major piece of what his duty is in the army. And if he doesn't sign off, it doesn't. That strike doesn't happen. I know that happens because I know the people, 
But you don't have to believe any of that. You can decide that we've all turned fascist and everything's just about murdering. It's still terrible for our allies. In other words, Joe Biden has, has supplied Israel with the weapons it needs to fight over the long term, including up north if the war expands. And he needs us to look like we care about civilians. And so we have a strategic, not a tactical, a strategic interest. And so we do care. And Israelis know that that our soldiers are in danger. I have... I, I have uh, my wife's two brothers are fighting in and out of the Khan Yunus area in that fighting, and, and they're in terrible danger, and nobody's flattening Khan Yunus to keep them safe. And so, anyway, it, we keep touching on all these different factors of what Israelis think, why they don't think, what the, uh, why the sympathy would be less or more, what they see in the press, um, what they experience by being close to the military experience, unlike the British or the Americans or the French, the military experience is, is close to the civilian population, so we're very familiar with it. All of those reasons uh, would shape the data. We still don't have data, and that's, that's right. very frustrating. the question, and, and, and that, I think, does hit the core of, uh, of this conversation as well, because it's not that we're, we, Israelis, are ignoring the suffering. No, there's a little bit of data on that. But I think Israelis right now, for the most part, view this war as an existential battle for for Israel, for our own homes. And so, yes, we take it for granted, actually, that there will be suffering. We take it for granted that our soldiers will, will die as well. We know this. And so we don't need to necessarily focus on it. I don't see any question on asking Israelis, how many soldiers do you think is appropriate to die in this war? No, because we know it is just part of the terribleness that was launched on October 7th. I think also um, some people overseas, um, they mock the Israeli sense um, that there's that there's something to fear from Hamas because the power gap is so immense. It's really important to say that the obvious thing to Israelis about this war is that it isn't a war with Hamas. It is manifestly not a war with Hamas. It is a war with an immense array of Iranian proxies bent on our destruction to which the Iranian regime has spent a double-digit percentage of the Iranian economy. If you count the nuclear program in there um, and the cost of sanctions over the years um, and all of that, the Iranian regime is seeking to reshape the Middle Eastern order. It's seeking to dominate the Middle Eastern order it has destroyed, literally demolished from within, uh, multiple Arab states in pursuit of constructing all of these immense proxies, expensive proxies, using money the Iranian economy really doesn't have, to destroy us. Destroying us is the first step in their view to a kind of Islamic renewal and a change in history and a return into you know God's good grace by Islam being on the march again as it was at the beginning Whatever. We can talk about the actual ideology of this regime, which is profound and deep and, and based in some old Islamic ideas, I think slightly perverts them or takes them in directions that didn't need to go. But nevertheless, that's what began on October 7th. And we know because Hezbollah has been putting up YouTube videos about it, that Hezbollah planned a much larger version of October 7th in the north and had built forces for it and tunnels for it and everything. And so... One of the interesting things about polls coming out now, this was a poll you sent me that Hebrew University did, was um, that there is immense support for a war in the north. It's not, Israelis, um, there, there are more Israelis, according to this poll, 
willing to let Hamas survive in some way, in other words, willing to not see the war through to some kind of extreme Hamas's absolutely wiped out conclusion because of the terrible consequences, there are more Israelis willing to do that than willing to let Hezbollah stay on the northern border. Right. And what's interesting about that uh, omnibus of data that uh, we, we both looked at yesterday is that it's current. This is current to, I think, a few days ago. It's not as if it's December, November, October. No, this is right, right now. And so when you say existential and seeing the, the, the suffering in Gaza through the prism of that existential question, Israelis think it's existential because it's on all our borders. It's immense. Hezbollah's 150,000 rockets could set Tel Aviv on fire. And they... And and if Hamas is any lesson, everything Hamas built, it it planned to use. It turns out they were never deterred. They were never contained. Well, then we have to assume that about Hezbollah. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all: What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. You mentioned videos, of course, coming out from Hezbollah, and we saw this week uh, videos from the Houthis, these, uh, you know, lovable little characters, rebels, right, who had similar videos showing how they would take settlements in Israel just like on October exactly. 7th. Exactly, and they have already decimated Yemen and, and created humanitarian catastrophes on a scale that dwarfs Gaza 15-fold. And so they, they would do it, and they would do it to the destruction of Yemen. And we know that about these proxies, and it does feel existential because it is. And so because Hamas is plugged into that, the, the Hamas is, is an internal Palestinian force. It is a Palestinian political movement, but the Hamas of October 7th, those capabilities are Iranian capabilities. And I think one thing that you just mentioned about um, belief is bears repeating because we Westerners, or at least somebody who grew up in North America, you start talking about religion, and if you're not religious, you just kind of say, okay, now I'm going to stop listening and let them be their own kind of religious, let them have their own beliefs, I'll respect that, put it into the corner, put it to the side, as long as they can be proper neighbors and function okay in, in society. These beliefs are fanatic beliefs. They are coloring every single thing they do. It's not as if, yes, they believe in Allah and we believe in Adonai. No, this is a murderous regime that has been sparked from these fanatical beliefs. I want to add a layer to this conversation. And that layer is why Israelis are immune, I think. They're, they're not immune to the suffering in Gaza. There is that conversation. I have had that conversation with 
friends of mine on the political right in Israel. And then they talk about Hamas's response when they talk about if Hamas is made immune by these civilian deaths, then Hezbollah will maximize civilian deaths against them to become immune. In other words, you're, you're ultimately killing more civilians by making civilian death make this kind of organization immune, right? That's a conversation. But Israelis are immune completely, I think, to the international horror at the civilian suffering in Gaza. And the reason they're immune to the moral feelings of of the world is that it 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 reeks of hypocrisy because the world does not actually swing into action on question of humanitarian suffering. There is no moral keening on any college campus anywhere in the world in the West uh, over Yemen. eighty five thousand children were starved to death in a war just in the last five years, and nobody's Nobody cared. Nobody knew. No college kids screaming decolonization on the campus of UPenn has cared notice. The Muslim world will march for the Palestinians, but never march for the hundreds of thousands murdered by Assad. The cleansing of Syria, of the Alawites' enemies. Syria, 13 years ago, was 10% Christian. One in every 10 Syrians was a Christian. 80% of those Christians are gone from Syria. Nobody noticed, nobody cared. None of the Christian world, none of the Christian governments of the world, none of the West noticed or cared. Minorities in the Arab world are being squeezed, they're disappearing, they have largely disappeared. We're the last ones standing sovereign on their own two feet. Maronite Lebanon is gone, and nobody cares about any of that suffering until it's Israel involved. And that is something that it's... It, it doesn't exonerate Israel of anything, absolutely anything. But it is awfully hard for the Israelis to take the International Court of Justice on the question of genocide seriously when China doesn't sit there over the Uyghurs, and when Russia doesn't sit there, and when, 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 when explicit actual genocides are not brought before it. And so Israelis are immune to that international, international storm of emotion that seems to them a lot more about Jews than about suffering Gazans. It is, it is, a, it is a kind of liberal gaze that, that picks and chooses in ways that are just, what is, you know, the rank hypocrisy of it is, is bigotry. It is a bigotry. I just want to add to that something really important. And yet, Israel isn't there in that conversation, and that is hurting Israel. And it's not hurting Israel because we have to actually worry about the moral emotions of foreigners who hate us, who who, who notice when we do wrong 10 times or 100 times more when they, than they notice when anyone else does wrong. By the way, it's not just that we're better than Assad. America in Iraq killed tens of thousands of civilians. That did not draw the protest in America. And I've had Americans explain it to me, oh, well, we give you aid, you're doing it with our money. Well, why are the French marching in the streets about it? Why why are there marches in the streets of... Uh, the Muslim world is, is marching in the streets about it. They don't march for any dead Muslims, except dead Muslims killed by Jews. So, that doesn't explain it. But setting that aside, the problem we have in the world, and I want to get your take on it. I just uh, spent a few days this week in London talking to some people uh, about the war, about all the different issues surrounding the war, including the civilian population of Gaza. And in London... Close, deep friends of Israel are deeply troubled. 
and they're not deeply troubled by the war, and they're not even deeply troubled by the humanitarian costs of the war, because that is what wars cost. The Yemeni Houthis are now trying to launch a different war. The Americans and the British have kind of started to engage them militarily because um, Biden just included the Houthis in the terror list, right? Well, what was that about? That Biden took them off the list so that they could supply humanitarian aid to Yemen. Well, that aid's about to stop because the Houthis are back on the list. So they understand that the bad guys are the reason there's the humanitarian crisis and not the good guys. But then they said to me things like, but you don't look like you care. And that makes it awfully hard to stand up in parliament and say you do. You don't look like it matters to you that there's going to be hunger in Gaza. And that makes it awfully hard to sit in think tanks or debates or go on the BBC and say that you do. Why isn't Israel taking a brigadier general? This is friend, a friend of Israel asked me this question almost in these words. Giving that brigadier general whatever they need to get the job done, soldiers, tents, and in Gaza, creating a humanitarian area under Israeli control, filtered with Israeli, you know, making sure the Hamas doesn't get in. Now, Hamas is definitely going to get in. Hamas is going to attack the place and they're going to be terror attacks there. Well, that looks good for Israel if there's a Hamas terror attack against an Israeli, a massive Israeli humanitarian aid operation. Israel can speak Arabic. There are 20% of our population are Arabs. Many, many of whom call themselves Palestinian. That, that is, they, they have many identities all at once, but Palestinian is a big part of their identity. They could be central to this effort. They identify with the state more than ever because Hamas really made Palestinian politics look pretty awful to Israel's Arab population. Build out a humanitarian aid system that not only shows that you care, but that shows that this is your priority. And I, I, I try to explain that, you know, that's, that's really not the focus. Our government has political problems doing it. Netanyahu can't look too friendly to the civilian population in Gaza because he has to worry about Ben-Gvir the day after, which isn't an, it's not an excuse, but it's a reason. It's just a diagnostic reason. And I tried to explain that there are these problems. And then the response was, I think, very deep, very serious, and really drove home a major part of the problem with this war, not having a future horizon. The answer was, Hamas can lose everything in Gaza and still win. And Sinwar can become a Saladin if the humanitarian crisis gets bad enough or is perceived to be bad enough in the Arab world that it cuts off Israeli relations with the Arab world for 10 years. If we're at the beginning of that humanitarian crisis, there's no telling where it's going to go. And if Israel doesn't look like it's the solution, then in the Arab world, the narrative that Israel is trying to push out the population or trying to destroy the population, which we have enough silly quotes from you know, various kinds of populists in Israeli politics to make that case at a shallow level in Al, in Al Jazeera or at the HCJ, it turns out, that becomes the narrative. So if you do take that seriously and you show that you take that seriously, you're not helping just the civilian population in Gaza. You're not giving the Israelis the sense that not only are we only going after Hamas, not only is Hamas responsible for their suffering, but we're the solution rather than the problem. You're also keeping Joe Biden's political window open for helping us. You're keeping the British government's political window open for supporting us. Why isn't that central to the effort? And so it's not just, you know, Israelis are immune to international uh, criticism because of the hypocrisy of it all. They shouldn't be because our friends need Israel to, sh to show not just to say occasionally in, by spokespeople, but to show on the ground in a big way that it's part of the solution.
Let me ask you a question, Khabib. I agree with you 100%. And I think that Israel, in terms of disaster uh, preparation or disaster uh, aid, is unparalleled. You know, every time there's some kind of earthquake or a landslide or anything of that nature, we send out teams and we can build pop-up hospitals. We know how to do this. But I would assume that doing it within Gaza would be detrimental to the war effort because we need to be able to operate within Gaza. So let me ask you this, Khaviv, where's Egypt? Why isn't Egypt allowing these people out into the pretty much barren Sinai Peninsula and then allow Israel to put up these pop-up cities and pop-up hospitals and things of that nature? Where's the condemnation from the Arab world on Egypt? part of the Arab world, one of its main leaders, for not allowing this kind of thing to happen. There is a real fear in the Arab world. It is honest. It is authentic. It is real. Um, that a Gazan who leaves Gaza won't be able to return. Um, Betzalel Smotrich encourages that fear by saying that openly. And um, we don't, you know, if, if people tell me, is Netanyahu beholden to Smotrich and Bengvir? I have to say yes. I don't have an option not to say yes, because his coalition falls without them. He's lost every poll in a year. And any policy after the war, he will literally not survive politically for a week if he is seen by them as betraying a fundamental interest. And Smotrich has said this is a fundamental interest. Gaza's population shrinking. He has talked about building settlements again. Overwhelming, in the Omnibus Hebrew University poll, overwhelmingly, Israelis do not want settlements in Gaza. But Smotrich is the right-wing 10% of Israel, and he does. And so... Um, Netanyahu won't have a coalition without him and therefore will be beholden to that. And so it's not a completely irrational fear that uh, if Egypt takes them in, they become refugees in Egypt uh, over the long term. I think it's absolutely impossible. It can't be done. Israel won't do it. They'll definitely get back in. But I, I need to explain so much of Israeli politics to the Egyptian who doesn't think that, that I understand why they don't think that. But if you can't do it in, first of all, it, it, the, the question of can you do it within Gaza is a technical one. Um, is there just literally a place in Gaza where it can be done, where the army can secure it, where there's no tunnel threat, um, and where there's some way to handle a million people and feed them and take care of them and have doctors see them and all of that? It is a um, rescue operation uh, exactly on that scale. Israel is wonderful at that. And the army is wonderful at that. That's one of the army's great strengths is, is this emergency mobilization rescue operation thing. Um, and so why not? Why why not? But if you can't do it in Gaza, do it in the areas, the sands of uh, Nitzana. Um, keep it civilians. The image of it will be politically very difficult. Israelis will say, in Gaza as well, Israelis will say, why are we taking care of them? They Give support, us our hostages back. They support then, Hamas right. right now. Today, this morning, there's a protest at Kerem Shalom, which is one of the crossings of the aid, the humanitarian aid, where just families of hostages are trying to block it because of this frustration. Right. But the other, the, I mean, the answer to that is you need a government in wartime to do something unpopular because it holds open the windows for us. It helps undermine Sinwar. If Hamas attacks these efforts, that is a that is an advantage to Israel in the internal narrative in Gaza. 
In the West Bank, we have the polls that we've all been talking about for the last month, 82% support October 7th, today, in the West Bank. In Gaza, it's less than half. And that gap is the gap of Hamas. Um, uh, either a huge plurality or even a majority of West Bankers actually want Hamas to stay in Gaza after the war. They want them to survive this and win. By surviving, you win if you're the you know insurgency. And a tiny number... I don't think it's 20% of Gazans want Hamas to survive this. They want any other option. There's, a, there's, I think, seven other options that Gazans say they want after the war. Hamas is only a small one among those many. And so Gazans, there is a narrative among Gazans that Hamas brought this destruction on them. And if there is a serious visible effort by Israel that's good for Israel strategically, it allows the war to last as long as it takes. It means Hamas isn't just playing us off of the civilian population. If we take seriously, the reason that we say the Gazan civilian death toll is morally not on our hands I don't know if every bombing is correct. I'm sure that among the bombings, there are ones that are not justified. I'm sure that a vast army that's carried out tens of thousands of strikes got it wrong sometimes. Every time the Americans went into every country they've ever gone into, hospitals were bombed. In in Iraq, it was the maternity hospital, famously of Baghdad. In 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 Afghanistan, in two different cities, hospitals. I'm not. And, and how do you fight a war without mistakes? But nevertheless, overall, Hamas is responsible morally for those deaths. We want to say that. So let's take it seriously. Why is Hamas causing those deaths? To hurt us. That's the long-term harm it's doing to us while it suffers the short-term harm of our campaign. Well, let's take that seriously and do everything imaginable to deny them the long-term harm against us of civilian suffering. It's something I started taking very, very serious. First of all, I didn't think that that's a serious argument because just the bandwidth capacity, the political unpopularity of doing something like that, it doesn't seem likely. Certainly not with Benjamin Netanyahu, who really is thinking about the day after throughout all of this, politically, his own political day after. So how do you even begin to get it through the government? After hearing the anxiety and frustration of good friends of Israel, people who, even in the British Labour Party, inside the Democratic Party, want to hold the door open for us to destroy Hamas, that's what they're begging for. And that should make us sit up and listen. And take it very, very seriously. Habib, this idea of being a light to the nation is very compelling and something we'll discuss in the future. Thanks for joining me today in our Jerusalem office. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to this week's What Matters Now. Please check out another episode next week. Until then, Shalom. I got married this Monday, in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like, my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag in a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. 
Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts.